what happens is a whole bunch of change happens all at once when you weren't expecting it. Somehow I've found that a lot of people like start a company the same time frame that they have a baby and move. And it's like, why do that all those things happen at once? Well, you somehow are open to change at that exact moment, or you just had, you forced yourself to have to be open to change because change was coming no matter what. So I would say, don't wait for the perfect moment for, to, uh, to make the leap, but go chip away at things you can do to get yourself ready for when that leap happens. That could mean like go reach out and have that conversation to someone who is in the ideal job that you think you want to be in. You know, don't wait for the situation to show itself. Reach out coldly on LinkedIn or something and, uh, and go start getting educated now. Be curious now and start taking little baby steps towards when that leap happens because it's the, pre- the perfect situation is not going to present itself. This is the Once a Scientist podcast, where I talk with scientists about their personal journeys and careers. Because, you know, once a scientist, always a scientist. I'm Nick Edwards, and thanks for listening. Okay, I'm talking today with Neil Bloom. We had so many technical difficulties to get into this conversation, <laughs> but I'm uh, excited to talk with Neil. He is an entrepreneur and investor. Uh, he's a, a San Diego evangelist and has really been... Um, leading a lot of you know community building efforts around the startup community in san diego uh, he was a, an early contributor to building san diego startup month uh, he hosts a really awesome podcast that you know has, has been a great inspiration to me called tacos and tech and if nothing else go and listen to the podcast because he has this incredible theme song that, <laughs> that <laughs> i need to find out who, who did that neil um, neil is also the ceo of rising tide partners He's a founder of Fresh Brewed Tech, and uh, he co-founded an ed tech startup called Portfolium. But I think, you know, most importantly, Neil is, I just found out about this recently, a rocket scientist. So <laughs> that is so cool. And I'm excited to talk to you today, Neil. Thanks so much for having me on, Nick. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so what? how do you go from rocket science uh, or engineering to what you're doing now. I mean, that is that it's such an interesting career path. Yeah, it it was a big jump. Uh, and I took a leap. We'll probably go back in time on this a little bit. But I took a leap based on um, really a, a, the retirement of the space shuttle. So with that happening in 2010, 2011, that changed the trajectory kind of of my life. I don't huh. use space uh, puns, so they will come out. Um, and uh, yeah. Before that, I mean, I grew up like in a household of all entrepreneurs and restauranteurs. So I was not around really science or even uh, formal business training. It was people who were just doing it. They were run. My dad, my grandfather were in business together. So was my mom in the real estate side. And so I just kind of figured I would go into the family business. And uh, that changed drastically in high school when I fell in love with science, both from my physics professor who pulled me into the robotics club and um, some of the other classes, chemistry as well too. And that at least changed what I thought I would go to school for. I, I just applied to college because I thought I'd just, my parents told me I need to go to college. <laughs> I was the first to ever go to college in my family. Wow. Uh, and by the time I had actually started on my first day, uh, I, because of the robotics club I was in, I was, uh, drastically changing even when I was studying. So I'd applied to school for business, but day one uh, at San Diego State actually was where I did my freshman year. Uh, I changed everything to engineering and very quickly realized I need to actually go and just knock these out at a community college. So I I quickly left uh, even my four-year program, went to community college to knock out all the math, science, and engineering pre-work, and then reapplied to UCSD. And started there as a mechanical engineer undergrad. Wow! I also actually started in uh, community college and then transferred and and uh, had no intentions of going into science or or engineering at the time either. So, when you were going through school and you were doing you know your mechanical engineering uh, studies, did you think that one day you were going to start up your own company or 
were you planning to work for a, a big company and, and stay within uh, kind of aerospace engineering? Or how, how did you think about that at the time? So if you ask anyone uh, during college, like, what did I say I was going to do when I grew up? I said I was going to be the CEO of Boeing. <laughs> uh, I don't know where that came from, but somehow I knew I was going to lead something. And apparently I thought I was going to lead a giant company. Um, <laughs> And that's actually all that was on my radar during college was was massive companies. As a mechanical engineer, especially in the early 2000s, um, when mechanical was still even if not more dominant than software engineering from a from a um, undergrad, or at least from a from a major population. Like at UCSD, we were larger, I think, mechanical than software, but that quickly got overshadowed. And um, everything that was in front of you was aerospace. You know, if you want to be a mechanical engineer or aerospace engineer, it's all aerospace defense. And these are all giant companies. And so that was really all that was on my radar. And even during college, uh, I was actually the president of our American Society of Mechanical Engineer Club, ASME. And I utilized it to go off campus and meet companies. So every month, the professional version of our chapter offered tours of industry. And I said, oh, what an amazing way to go meet companies and understand what's out there. Uh, for me, I wasn't a great student. And so I needed hands-on experience as well as work experience to keep me motivated and to think about what this degree is going to get me one day. Uh, and so going off campus and just seeing what what does a mechanical engineer do was the inspiration point for me to know that, okay, this is a field I can see myself in, even though I'm studying it. And all those Companies were big companies. They're big arrow. You know, it was the Viasats and General Atomics and Northrop Grumman and Boeing. Uh, and that's all I thought about. And so when I applied for my first internship, I really just applied for all the big, the big companies. I, I eventually worked at BAE, British Aerospace Engineering, uh, as my first internship, uh, actually up in the Bay Area. And I worked on... Um, uh, troop carriers for the army. So I was working on kind of tanks and armored personnel carriers. Hmm. And uh, I loved the hands-on nature of it. I was actually, it was actually, it was their R and D facility in um, Santa Clara. And I was told, Hey, we've got this advanced technology demonstrator pretty much was like a shell of a, of a tank. And we go and we test and try new things on it. And this summer, we want you to go build an air conditioning unit. And we're going to pitch it to the Army at the end of the summer. Uh, and I thought, that sounds cool. Sure. <laughs> what, do I, what do I need to do? And, and they just handed me like a giant box of parts to um, two machinists, a welder, and a procurement team. And they said, just draw and design and, and just go figure it out. And so I was literally like on the back of envelope, like talking to my wel welder saying, hey, can you designed me this uh, reservoir for um, refrigerant. And he'd come back that afternoon and be like, here you go, weld it together and we'd bolt it on. No and, way. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> it, was, it was so fun. Uh, I don't know why they would let a 20 year old do that. Yeah. Uh, whatsoever. <laughs> that's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it really left me alone. I would say like my boss and, and other t members of my team, they'd come check out every week and be, see the progress. And uh, I was like, you know, this is really fun. I'm going to make the most of this and learn a lot. Uh, but I don't think it really charted a course for what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I really was thinking I'm validating to myself that this is something I still want to do because I, honestly, school was really hard for me. And every day I was like, oh, man, if, if working is just as hard as physics and engineering classes, I don't know if I want to do this for real. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and the internship, the hands-on every day said, yes, building with my hands is so empowering. I, I get to stand back at the end of the day and say, look what I created, look what I did, you know? And so, uh, that was all that was in front of me at 20 years old, at least. Uh, and it was a tremendous experience, but I ultimately did, decided at the end of that summer that I actually did not like defense. There was actually kind of a, I don't know if it was a pacifist thing, but there was a part of me that said I didn't want to actually build defense vehicles anymore. Sure. Well, at least I crossed that off. And so when I started looking at future companies, I looked at things that, uh, I don't know, just weren't defense related. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously space, SpaceX wasn't around. That would have been a, you know, it's a kind of fit within your, your interest. But um, it seems like that, that industry is going through some pretty big change right now. And, and uh, um, do you ever look back and, and think like, you know, 
Do you, do you, are there things that you miss about engineering? Uh, it sounds like you maybe that hands-on aspect, but you're, you're still creating things, right? Do you just like view it differently? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I definitely miss being in a room with like some of the smartest people in the world uh, in a very specific domain expertise. Uh, that's definitely what you get with uh, industry like, like space, which is what I later went on to. I worked for a company called United Technologies that primarily built um, rocket engines for NASA and the Air Force. Hmm. Um, and so co- direct competitor to SpaceX, or I'd say SpaceX is a competitor to them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, This is a company called Rocketdyne that uh, since the f- late 40s were the pr- only builder of engines for human launched systems. So The only one? Yeah. Uh, wow. Until literally this May, there was the only... American company that had launched um, American astronauts. Hmm. So it's pretty cool. You're steeped in a lot of history and you're surrounded by a lot of legacy. You're surrounded by people who've been doing the same thing for 30, 40 years, right? And they're they're so passionate that all they've ever wanted to do is put people in space and that's all they could ever picture themselves doing. So that kind of passion is, is contagious. Um, and it is hard to find in the startup world. For sure. I think you hmm. find in the startup world, people find they run into a problem every day and they just decide, I'm going to go disrupt it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to solve that. And you don't find the 40 year vets. The 40 year vets are usually the ones you're disrupting. You know, SpaceX is disrupting the 40 years worth of um, Rocketdyne's legacy, you know, to a certain regard. Yeah. Uh, so that part is interesting to, to look back and, and miss that part, um, as well as just the idea of just sticking with a company for your entire career, you know, that, that idea is going away. I feel like yeah. uh, it's definitely okay to hop around companies now and get experience. Well, it's at least accepted, you know, in, in the industry now where it wasn't before. Uh, and so those are, those are aspects I miss. Um, I definitely miss launching people into space. You know, there's only <laughs> so much that so many things that can be said to be done around that, but it is really hard to make that happen economically. I mean, we were launching, the space shuttle at a billion dollars a pop, uh, five times a year. So that's five billion dollars, just per you know for five launches. And uh, the space shuttle was not built to do more than be a pickup truck, which is bring cargo to space. And once we finished bringing cargo, bu- building the space station, it didn't really have a place anymore. Uh, and so it was retired in 2010, 2011, and they let go of about 60 or 70 percent of the industry. Wow. Um, I stayed on, which I think I had survivor's guilt of because, you know, there are 40 year like real rocket scientists who were being let go. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I'm 22, 23. I'm staying on. I'm going to work on the next thing. Uh, and so that's when I started thinking about how do I help these people on their next project? And that's what ultimately became portfolio. We pretty much thought we could help um, engineers repitch themselves or remarket themselves for a new job. And that needs to be done in a different way than a resume. Like it needs to jump off the paper. Excitement needs to come. Passion needs to come. And that was a visual visual resume or the visual portfolio, which is portfolio, which is what it turned into. Um, we had so many pivots along the way and it ultimately was not a tool for engineers or not, not at least experienced engineers. It really was better for students. Uh, mm. But that is the way of an entrepreneur I have learned is you pivot until you find a market uh, and that's what turned me on to the startup world was just this constant finding of who's my customer. What's the solution I'm trying to solve for. Um, and that, that's actually where I feel creative as well. Like an engineer, I feel that I am constantly coming up with an idea and I'm learning how to validate that idea. Uh, in the rocket world, we'd validate that through some serious testing in the startup world, there's at least in the software world, there's so many tests, software-enabled tests that you can run for really light ways, throwing up a landing page, putting an ad up on Facebook that uh, validate your your premises in the first place. And that still feels creative to me in that regard of understanding, yeah. knowing who your customer is and, and are you delighting them? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's a different type of problem to solve for because, I mean, I think about it's a little bit different from my perspective as well. Cause I worked in like, you know, pretty pure R and D where it was very, very basic, um, not even doing much translational to human health. Um, and the, 
the big difference between that and whether it's startup or, or business in general is that you're you're trying trying to in R and D you're trying to answer questions. Um, whereas I feel like in in business and industry you're trying to solve problems that real people experience. And and I think that's one of the, like the exciting things about working you know uh, building a startup or you know working being in a position where you can enact change is that you're doing something that uh, by definition has to help people somehow, right? Yeah, you hope that you're building something that impacts lives for sure. Um, each person I think has a different heart connection to that impact, right? Some want to know that they're curing cancer some way or another, right? Whether it's in a lab, building a device, um, you know, building a, a something that enact, hits the masses. Uh, I think that is definitely what inspires a lot of startup founders, the scale idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's certainly people who could say that the space shuttle on the surface felt like we were launching seven people to space and what was that impact, you know? And so we oftentimes had to say, you know, the science that's being conducted, the materials that are being designed impact the world. But we really had to sell that part. You know, why do you spend a billion dollars to send seven people up for, you know, an eight hour journey? Uh, and I think that's the same in startups. Every person has a different connection to what are they impacting. I personally, I don't want, I don't feel connection to creating the next Facebook. Like I don't, I don't feel like social media is it for me. I feel like I want to change people's lives in a way that, you know, changes the way that we get to work through mobility or uh, designs a new way that we connect with family members um, from a health regard, right? We can see each other's data or something like that. And we can detect that, hey, someone may have a problem sooner than we would have thought diagnostic wise. So I think that's the difference at each person, like what's the impact they want to have. And the hope is that you build something that impacts the masses, impacts millions uh, of the whole world. And, and that's at least why you go for swinging for the fences. That's why you talk about a startup being a grand slam or a, or a strikeout sometimes. Um, it's something where you're going to step up to the plate and you know, you're going to go for big and you hope that it, it is big. Uh, if not, you tried really hard and you'll try again. You'll, you'll swing again soon for something big as well. Uh, yeah. Big effort for sure. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned, you know, a couple minutes ago about not being a great student. Uh, I think that's really interesting because you're clearly very smart and, and, uh, you know, you've, you've accomplished big, important things. Um, and I think that it's, it's an important point. Cause like, I was not the best student either. Um, I, I, I got fairly good grades and, and it wasn't, yeah, but but like I really struggled going to classes and like sitting through classes. It was it was a challenge for me, um, and and I kind of pushed through and did the PhD in spite of that. Um, and you don't have to do a lot of classes in a PhD anyway. But um, like, what are the things? What are what are some of like the the traits that you think? And, and I'm not asking you to toot your own horn. Uh, but are, what are some of the traits that you think that that you have? If it's not like you know book smarts or or, or whatever it is like. Um, what, what's allowed you to be successful through throughout your career? Hmm. You know, as you say, and even hearing you say, I, I wasn't a good student. I've realized now that school, at least college, um, it wasn't about the grades. It was about learning how you learn. Yeah. Uh, right. And for me, I quickly realized I'm not going to be good in the classroom. Maybe I have to be good outside the classroom. Uh, and so at least for me, that self-awareness was one, was actually a skill set that I realized that hmm. I'm not like everyone else and I'm not playing in the same game everyone's playing, right? Like everyone's working on that 4.0. I'm not. So huh. how do I be the 4.0 of the, of something else, right? Uh, and so that self-awareness, I think, helped me along, along the way. Uh, I think what something I learned, at least when I was at a giant engineering firm, was also, I wasn't the smartest rocket scientist. So what skill set did I have? I learned that I have emotional intelligence that is maybe a little bit above the average engineer. Uh, I can relate to people in a little bit different way. And so I leaned into that. And that's probably why I became the a liaison to NASA, where I was the one who interfaced a lot more often than, say, your solid, um, your, your structural engineer. Um, so that was another awareness for me. I, I wouldn't say I felt it in the moment. The position was given to me because someone else noticed it about me. 
But looking back, I realized, okay, I wasn't like everyone else. What was different? They gave me this opportunity. I excelled at it and it was a different role than everyone else had. So that was, that was interesting for me to look back on is just those, those pieces. Uh, the other side is of, of what I talked about, about how I learn. I learn really well with hands-on learning. So I, I don't learn well when someone shows me and then walks away and says, figure it out. I need to try it same time as someone else is trying it. So that hands-on learning piece has taught me to do a lot more working meetings with people as opposed to just meetings to just talk. You know, we'll, we'll share a screen, we'll try something together, whether that share some code and have me try it and execute it, or uh, me learn how to podcast along someone else, you know, by watching them do it. So that, that part, that awareness of just how do I pick up on traits has uh, helped me grow um, as just like an operational person. Um, the other parts are like some of the technical, some of the just awesome virtualization tools have helped me learn how to be a manager and an owner of a company. Uh, and some of those are um, realizing that I also, maybe I'm not good at taking notes. And so what I need to do is record all my talks or meetings or anything like that so that I have like a video evidence and afterwards I can go and transcribe myself. Um, because in the moment I'm, I just can't, I'm not good at listening to someone and writing down notes. Um, so that self-awareness has taught me a lot about just how I operate and how I, how I manage and own. They're very specific, obviously. I don't know if you're asking that specifically. No, uh, no, I, I think it's really, I think it's really interesting and, and, and great because actually I have that same thing where that was, that was one of the reasons why I didn't go to class in, in college because, um, it was hard for me to, to pay attention and listen and, and take notes at the same time. And so, uh, I, I found that, uh, as a college student that I just operate a lot better, like there were entire classes like statistics, calculus, um, I not maybe not calculus, but statistics, genetics, um, uh, at least probably four or five others. I never even went to a single class <laughs> because I realized that uh, I was better at reading the book and understanding and 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 reading made more sense to me and and just kind of like conceptualizing it in my head than like going and taking notes. And so you know, I think it's it it's a it's a really important point, and I think the abstraction is that like pay attention to where you start to excel like what what is hard for you and and where you start to excel because that really helps you to figure out what some of your strengths are early on and and i think that you know life is more about being able to utilize your strengths than like fill in any fill in gaps right yeah i completely agree i, I think that actually brings in the idea of diversity and, and exposure to things you, you can't expect that just one way you've been shown uh, is the only way, but you're not going to know if you don't try other things. And so that that is another piece of me. Uh, I've learned to be curious uh, and learn to to not take one way as the only way. And I think that's actually interesting for a scientist or engineer. Like we are optimizers, we are mm -hmm. A/B testers, right? We want to say how do we make this? How do we improve this? And we know how to do that. We know how to run a control and and look at variables. Uh, and that's a, an, an actual piece of my career that has actually helped me really well right now in the marketing world is applying this idea of how do you run isolated tests, but do it in a way where most people are not very scientific, which is the marketing world. Most people are marketers are not data driven. It's becoming that way, but not as much as you'd think. And that same thing can go for, you know, just your own skill sets. How can you optimize yourself to be a better learner uh, and be curious to try something different? Never kind of be okay with uh, this is it. It could always get better and constantly improve. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So part of part of the approach that you're talking about, it's, it sounds like it's you know kind of controlling, try, trying to control extraneous variables and and like change one thing at a time and and test the effect and see like how that affects whether whether it's like viewership or listenership or for podcast whatever it is. And so. Um, I, when when people ask me like, hey, do you ever miss being a scientist? Like, I my my gut reaction is I'm still a scientist. I'm I'm still a neuroscientist. Like, I, I did that for so many years, and it's like ingrained in my in, in my uh, way of thinking that like my entire professional life is shaped by the scientific process. And even if it's not like a scientific subject that I'm studying, like how something works at a fundamental level, 
I'm still using the same problem solving process to uh, approach working with people to um, figure out how to, I don't know, build a, a tool that affects a lot of people. Uh, it's, it's really not that different in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely agree. Totally. I, I don't necessarily think of myself a rocket scientist in, in the marketing world, but I do think about instrumentation that I was in charge of, whether that was on that air conditioning unit I built or the test engine. I thought about the idea that, hey, we need to, this is the outcome we need. We need to determine if this engine's okay. How do we do that? We show that this, the speed is at the speed we want. The temperature is at that speed. And therefore, it's on me to go and put those sensors on the places that I know that I need to put them on to get that data. Uh, and I look at marketing the same way. I look at what's the, what's the outcome that we want. You know, let's, let's take a podcast, for instance. Um, we want this episode to be listened to for a number of, by a number of people, specifically for, we want that number to know that we can sell ads on it. Okay, how do we go and determine how many people listen to it? How, what knobs are at our control that we could try to ramp that up, right? How could we go and try to get 50% more listeners to a specific episode? And it just harkens right back to what instrumentation do you have at your hands? Uh, and yeah, I completely agree. It's it's really looking at, you know, what it, what's your experience and how do you apply that forward? The, it's a framework, I guess, right? We're both living in, we both understand certain frameworks and how do we layer that over um, future learnings and future opportunities that works for us? There's also, you know, I've talked about this with a, with a couple other people, which is like, there's this humility i think that is is driven into you when you're studying something very technical and very challenging that um it's it's hard <laughs> and and uh uh answers don't come easily in a lot of cases i don't know you know if that's the case with uh rocket science or, or engineering i would imagine that there's probably some similarity but in, in biology it's like you do 90 90 percent of your experiments fail and so um it teaches you to be super resilient and and uh, realize that that it's a long game and and uh, and and I think also you know it teaches you a level of humility about all the things in the world that I don't know and I don't have control over, uh, but just trying to be able to make sense of and and uh, you know control the things that I that I am able to. Uh, it's these are like you know super hazy life. Uh, skills or life lessons, but I think that they're pretty important and they're definitely things that I learned in, in science. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, when we're launching seven people, there is zero room for error, right? And that is so ingrained down your throat that there, you know, we cannot fail. We cannot let yeah. seven people die. Uh, and so you, you learn a lot of skills around that. I learned a lot about, um, oh man, specifically how to say it, like, typos in a sense, or looking for error. Like the idea that you can, the idea that, uh, you know, you can't miss something. Like when I'm reviewing data and I'm putting together, say a PowerPoint to present to our customer back in the rocket engine days, like there, you couldn't be wrong. So stay up 24 hours and, and look through everything and figure it out. And so that's ingrained in you. And now when you go and send a newsletter about here's what's happening in San Diego tech this week, like no one's going to die if there's a typo, but yet it's still somehow ingrained in you that you don't hit go until you got the green light yeah. and you feel thumbs up, you know? Uh, and maybe you have to learn to like unplug a little bit, the real, the seriousness of it, right? Like you can't, you can't take two weeks to make a decision on an email, uh, but you would maybe for launching the space shuttle, but there, at least you understand the gravity and you understand gray gradients of gravity in that regard, you know? Um, so yeah, I think those the seriousness of what you're working on is 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 really special to take hold of. Um, I guess it's just how much time and effort do you want to put into it when it doesn't matter as much. But it's better to think that way than think, oh, nothing serious. You know, I don't have to put out 100% A plus work. I like the gradients of gravity. Uh, well, it's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> idea. It's like you're constantly prioritizing and saying like, how much, how much level of effort do I need to focus on this specific thing? Because, you know, like it, it's, I, I, I imagine that's kind of what you're getting at. Uh, you're, you're, you're kind of like constantly yeah. like figuring out like what, what is the impact of this and like how much, how much effort do I need to put in to make sure that this is exactly right? Or, uh, 
you know, versus like if it's a casual email to so, to a colleague that you talk to every day, it's probably not a big deal, right? Yeah, but it's something you do so often that you like start to determine mm-hmm. a, a habit of it, right? And you say, okay, if if it needs to be perfect every time, does that slow me down versus does it not? You know, and you start just kind of determining um, what's the impact of this, what's the risk. And stuff like that. And that actually is actually driven into an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur determines what level every decision you make is what's the level of risk here and can I take it or not? You know, uh, do I lose a client because of this? Do I lose a customer? Do I um, miss out on an opportunity because I didn't take something as serious or I felt there wasn't a risk there? Um, so, yeah, risk is actually a really interesting other skill set to determine as an entrepreneur and now as an investor. What's the risk and how do you? You know, assess it. And I think you learn that in science and engineering. You learn what risk really is because there are things that are very, very important that determine on your um, attention. I want to jump into this a little bit because because like actually what, what you do uh, for tacos and tech uh, as well as fresh brewed tech, um, you have a, a heavy focus on the San Diego community, uh, the San Diego startup community. Um, and I think startups in, in general, um, so can you can you just maybe talk a little bit about like like what what's the purpose of of the podcast and and uh, fresh root tech? Sure. So when I was starting um, Portfolium, we got into an incubator called Evo Nexus, a San Diego based incubator that helps early early companies who are just at the commitment phase, meaning they are hundred percent full time on their company. That's when you can get in. And uh, at that exact moment, I was put into a room with thirty other entrepreneurs who all were working on their own companies. And we all kind of looked around and determined, oh, wow, we're all going through some of the hard things together or, or on our own. What would it mean for us to lean in and share our, our successes and our, our failures together? Um, and that was the very beginning of Startup San Diego, which ultimately became a nonprofit and a conference that welcomes uh, and celebrates entrepreneurship uh, and people who want to work for entrepreneurs. Uh, and so that was kind of my first introduction to a community of, of entrepreneurs and startups. And that was in early 2013. And while we kept building Portfolium, uh, I constantly leaned in and said, what is what are the entrepreneurs need around me? Like, what are the resources I'm having access to? And who's missing out on that? Uh, and there were a lot of missing resources. And so we kept building them into Startup San Diego. Uh, this nonprofit. So ultimately, alongside of building portfolio, a for-profit business, I also joined in on this nonprofit entity um, and really got introduced to a whole bunch of companies that way. And uh, along the way, I we I left my my portfolio company. We sold it. I joined another company. And at some point, not too long ago, about a year, year and a half ago, I looked around and said, "Okay, what is the landscape for all people like me? Like, like, what is?" A startup community really offer someone, and are we are we there? Do we have a place where people know how to start, uh, know how to create and um, build a prosperous company? And when I looked around at that, I thought, well, we have a lot of the pieces, but they're all siloed. No one really knows that how they all operate and integrate with each other, and that actually is hurting us as a San Diego ecosystem. We are not playing together like a big symphony. We've got all a bunch of like these little entities that say, hey, come to my startup accelerator. I can help you. Uh, but not necessarily saying we can help you on your journey to the next thing. Uh, and that's when I started Fresh Brew Tech. This was really a media company that said, hey, I'm going to bring awareness to everything that's out there. Because if I don't know it, then a lot of people don't know about them as well. I started blogging and podcasting and, and really just saying, hey, everyone, did you know about this? Did you know that this thing exists? Did you know we have a history of this too? And that's actually another part that we like to tell is Mm. our roots uh, of where our tech industry came from. So we've told stories around the founding of Google Analytics, which started in San Diego uh, with a company called Urchin Analytics. Uh, And unraveling that, we realized we've actually got a really big data and analytics background in San Diego, going back to the 80s and 90s, where we designed some of the first algorithms for fraud detection, which turned into HNC, turned into the FICO buildings off the Mm -hmm. 56, if you've seen those. Um, And so all that storytelling piece that we started doing, we realized 
no one really knew that our roots and that everything else existed right around them. And so Fresh Brew Tech is, uh, it's a cheerleading engine. It's it's a, a, a way to broadcast from the top of the, our uh, buildings, hey, check out what, everything that's going on in San Diego. Um, and we do that through a variety of ways. We, we send out an email newsletter every week. Here are events, jobs, uh, fundings, and some other news. And then we also tell it through our podcast where we get to know uh, the builders of great tech companies uh, or at least tech communities as well. We love to interview people in government, uh, university, as well as the entrepreneurs themselves. And and scientists, I think, play a big part of that as well too. You know, designing uh, technology that will turn into great companies who employ awesome people. So that's Fresh Brew Tech. It's a media entity. We've now actually started three other entities. We've, we've got one in Orange County doing the same thing. Uh, and we're starting one in Santa Barbara too, uh, where we are, we're, we're going to help tell the Santa Barbara tech story and build evangelism there as well. So we think we've built a model for local tech news and we're probably going to try to roll it out into a lot of, lot of cities that are pretty under the radar for the tech community and tech companies that they've built. I think San Diego is a, is a unique place where it's kind of like, if you, I don't want to make comparisons, um, but okay. <laughs> if you, you make can. comparisons to like Silicon <laughs> Valley or Boston, uh, it's clearly not as mature of a, of an ecosystem and an environment, but like it's almost there in a lot of cases. And, and, and it's, it's the community coming together, kind of like, like you're saying, and, and, uh, um, having shared resources and, and, you know, maybe like, uh, more centralized locations. It's all really difficult with COVID right now. Right. Um, yes and no, I think, I think, yes and no. interestingly, what people really need is like a one-stop shop to go and find the answer to something. Right. If, if you say, Hey, I think I'm starting an idea. Where do I go to help determine if it's a good idea? And I think you could very quickly go to a ton of networking events in person pre-COVID that a lot of people would have told you different answers. Oh, you got to go to this place, got to go to that place. And I think that virtualization nature right now is actually showing that two things. One, you can build a quick website that says, here's the general listing and try all these resources uh, and save you from going to tons of you know networking events. Uh, two, it's also making people it's a commoditizing a bit of the community because the ones who are actually finding success are, are being shown pretty quickly. Like they're not having to hide behind a good marketing budget or a, a shiny office or stuff like that. Um, I, so I think there's actually interesting where certain things are being pushed through a smaller mm -hmm. funnel now where you have, there's only one place to go for certain answers. Uh, and, and so startup month was actually created around this where, we first created Startup Week, a week-long celebration of entrepreneurship, but then we realized we need to educate employees at every tech company too so that they're learning just as fast as the CEO is learning because everyone needs to be rowing at the same speed, right? We all need to be leveling up mm -hmm. to make our companies better because that will mature our community. Um, and so Startup Month this year specifically is all about skills-based learning where you can learn data, design, development, sales, marketing. And that can be applicable to you as the entrepreneur, the CEO, right? Maybe the CEO is a technical background and needs to learn how to sell. Uh, it could also be on the, the you know, employee side. If you're employee number 150 uh, at a startup, there's still things you need to learn as well too. You know, albeit could be sales marketing also or product management, data, and, and design. So um, that's what Startup Month is about. And I truly believe that we all need to be learning and growing our own expertise to make our companies better so that we have that maturity moment. Uh, and the piece that's, I think, interesting you mentioned about Boston and the Bay Area, at least in the biotech space, is that maybe they've had more exits. Maybe that's a, a milestone for maturity. You've had companies that have been acquired or hit this, hit this inflection point that says we made it and it, certain people jump off and go start something new. And that's that, that cyclical wheel that happens that I've done it before. I know how to do it. And I'm going to have more success on round two. Other things can spin off of them because they're big enough and, and people and, and they've got an innovation culture where people have the ability to kind of go off and do something that's tangential maybe in some ways. Yeah. 
And, and we look at that in the tech world, we call those tech mafias. Uh, the first one to be called that was PayPal, the PayPal mafia. Uh, later created, you know, Peter Thiel, who funded Facebook, uh, created Reed Hoffman, uh, LinkedIn, Elon Musk for SpaceX. And you look at these legs now of a family tree of what did PayPal bring? Uh, I think that shows maturity. And that's what we're trying to do in San Diego as well. We're trying to map that those tech mafias, if you will, you know, who are the original people at Illumina and what have they gone off to do now? Even if it's not the original founders, those first hundred employees uh, probably are still not there and have probably gone on to either start or fund other companies. And that is a whole ecosystem in its own regard. And that, that just causes maturity and that's going to take time, you know, for us to get there. But that expertise of knowing uh, how to do something really speeds up our maturity time faster as well too. Uh, and so you'll just see comp- an entrepreneur who's on company four is just going to get to success quicker than, than they were on company mm-hmm. one. Uh, but you can't force that through. We can't, you know, really say, Hey, entre- first some entrepreneur, here's how we're going to try to speed you up on your learning. You just got to know that surround them with good people who've done it before, good talent. And uh, that will help uh, their learning and the maturity if they're open to it. So there's probably like a few elements, which is like that, that, um, learning and, and maturity that uh, that allows you to like know how you've done it in the past and maybe optimize it even better in the next instance um there's also the the capital you know uh people you know early early stage employees of these you know companies that that, that grow up they have the ability to invest in, in different things and so it, it um there's you know that's probably an element of a big element of the ecosystem and then like building a, it's, it's almost like building up enough people that care about these types of problems and, and it's like a critical mass of of, of talent that uh, can feed off of each other and and uh, help each other to, to build these things um, are there other other elements that yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's other elements that I'm probably missing here <laughs> Ooh, there's a lot there yeah um, I think even just within an industry cluster you can see all that happen right genomics in San Diego is is blowing up because of all of those things you've talked about, right? There's enough density where people have said, we had success, but we're not done yet. Let's mm-hmm. go work on the next thing, right? And they'll go and work on genomics company number two, three, four, and five. Uh, and they don't have to start, right? They can go and join. You know, there's plenty of people who start a company, sell it to another, and then go join, you know, a big company and say, you know, hey, I want to go either learn or hit a home another home run uh, with a big company. So it's not specific to startups only. Uh, but it is about a density where you've got this industry expertise. And, um, you know, we're seeing that in San Diego, spe- specific on the life sciences side. Now, what's interesting about life sciences in San Diego is that I think a lot of it is blurring the lines between tech now, software, data science. You know, genomics, for one, is a data set. It is a code language. And we're learning how to manipulate it uh, like another software mm-hmm. uh, base, right? We're learning how to lean into data science to say, What's the power of this? What can we do with it? Uh, what's the artificial intelligence that we can apply to this as well? So I think there's something really interesting in San Diego to say that big bio is meeting big data and we are not two separate worlds, but we are one. Uh, medical device is another one, right? There's, there's implantables in your body now that you can control with an app on your phone. And diagnostics, same thing too, right? The ability to um, stream and see video inside the body, uh, to test quicker, faster, more accurate is all enabled because of software and tech and and leaning into some of the engineering principles of today. So I'm really uh, I'm really excited to see these worlds collide. I'm excited to see life science people embrace tech, you know, software and vice versa. Uh, the same with capital. I think capital now can find a, a home to both sides in San Diego as well too. We used to say, oh, I'm a life science funder or I'm a tech funder. But now mm-hmm. you're both, right? Uh, and now that means more capital can flow to more of these areas, which means more access to more companies and um, more expertise as well. So I think San Diego, if it leans into that, which it is, is going to be a force multiplier uh, on, and will mature much quicker than other communities that don't realize that we're better if these two, two industries lean in together. I think that you know San Diego is... A, is- particularly good place for that because you know UCSD has such an incredible like engineering departments and biology departments so that 
you know, you, you, you have to, it feels, it seems like you have to have both the industry and, and like academic, um, learning and culture and, and like, not just like, not just the ability to like utilize tech transfer from universities, but it's also like a talent pipeline. Right. And, um, UCSD has a really incredible talent pipeline. And so, you know, I guess it's just building that up as well as probably local government and and uh, um, support at the at the government level to to make sure that these kinds of things are facilitated. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's always more room for academic industry partnerships and like learning how to work with each other more. I think there's this giant feeling of like a chasm where you jump over one to the other. And it feels, at least from an outsider, who's I, I would never have claimed myself to be an academic. Uh, once you make the jump from academia to industry, you kind of don't look back, but industry should be looking and training, um, (laughs) academics, how to make that jump easier. Right. And how do you, whether that is during your PhD program, go work in industry, like almost force it and learn that, Hey, the things you're working on that if they need to be, if they need to hit a home run, they need to be. They need to work their way through industry. So therefore, you need to know that the things you're working in a lab needs needs to transfer uh, one day into a company. Uh, and so, how do we train PhDs to think at least a little bit around business totally. to a certain extent? My understanding: most PhDs just have been in school since 18, uh, predominantly, and therefore haven't seen industry. And so, I don't. I wouldn't push academia on that as much as as industry saying, if we're gonna, you know take this technology and adopt it, we need to make sure that the people building it understand how to validate it, uh, understand customer adoption and things like that, that industry is good at. And so I would push industry more to get involved uh, to show PhDs and master's students, like, here's how industry thinks. And as an investor, I want that too. I want to see like, one, you're the smartest person at the thing you've developed. Probably that's easy to be shown as a PhD student. But I also want to know, like, can you run a company? Do you know how to hire people? Do you know how to spot talent? Uh, and some of those things you can do within a lab, right? You do recruit people to your lab. So as long as you're thinking about that from how is that going to apply to business one day, that also will help de-risk the investment from an hmm. investor as well, too. This so interesting. You you come, you have many different facets. Like so, so it's, I guess, yeah, in a startup ecosystem, there's, many different kind of ways to approach and, and uh, you know, there's, there's the legal aspect, there's business, there's the science, there's the, um, you know, many different ways. And, and you've kind of touched on a lot of those different ways. And so it's kind of cool to hear things from that more holistic level. Um, so, you know, it sounds like you've, you focused more on investment and, um, and you, you have the, um, it's rising tide partners. Uh, so, is that something that you have kind of kicked off more recently and, and what's it been like uh, kind of focusing on, on that angle a little bit more as opposed to building and starting up your own company? So Rising Tech Partners actually is an accidental company to a certain extent. Um, I was blogging and podcasting with Fresh Brew Tech and people came to me and said, can you do that business evangelism as a white labeled service for us? And so Rising Tech Partners is actually a, a agency, marketing agency, where we do communications work, PR communications, content creation mm. uh, for hire. So that's a company that I'm running now. Uh, and we have a, a group of 10, maybe 12 city governments who have hired us to say, hey, can you evangelize our business communities, but under our brand mm. instead of Fresh Brew Techs? So I'm running that now, uh, but I also investing. And that's come from a few things. Being in the community so long, I've gotten to know entrepreneurs and I've watched them over time execute. And I can say now that I've seen some execute really well and some kind of get stalled. And uh, I've at least learned to determine and what's, what is a, a good entrepreneur, or at least I've started to understand that. Um, certain traits, there's definitely no one playbook, just like I'm sure anyone who's hired talent before, there is no specific set rubric of what makes the perfect hire. Uh, and so investing for me is actually this next skill set that I'm trying to learn, which is how do you assess talent, but specifically how do you assess talent who can go, who's good at assessing talent? Because when I'm writing a check to a CEO, I'm expecting for him to, or her to take that check 
and hire up, hire people with it, right? I'm expecting them to say, thank you for your money. I now will go and build a team who can execute on the things I said my slide deck would do. Uh, and so I really am enjoying that part of the talent spotting of other talent spotters. Um, and so, yeah, that, that the nexus of covering and meeting a lot of entrepreneurs in town. So having a good network as well as watching them over a period of time where they didn't realize they were, um, their performance was on display for me, right? When, when people come and pitch you, they're on their best behavior, right? They're, they're very polished. But when you get to watch them from afar and see that the work that they do, uh, you build, you know, rapport with them and you understand if their kind of rapport is, is heading up on a graph or down. Uh, you kind of are taking, there's a famous line in venture capital of turning dots into lines. And that is really slope, right? Every time you see someone, you are building slope. And is that positive or negative slope? Uh, is Are you making a positive impression by saying you're succeeding at the things you said you were going to do? An example of this is uh, an entrepreneur saying, um, you know, in the next six months, we're going to apply for uh, a phase one SBIR grant. And uh, then at that point, we will hire a team of three and uh, we'll start, you know, testing some things. Well, great. I'll check in with you in six months and see how you're doing. And if you're not there, fine. You know, I'll check back in again. But uh, if I want to see that you're going to execute mm-hmm. on the things that you're going to do, and that will determine if you are grounded and uh, rooted in reality, or you're just really good at telling a good story. So that part is really interesting of, of investing. Uh, and I don't think I really appreciated how important hiring and talent spotting was when I was working as opposed to now when I am investing and running my own company too. How do you determine whether someone speaks a good game or whether they can actually execute? Uh, I guess, I mean, obviously it's about past experience, but you know, there's so many elements of, of, luck and happenstance and sometimes in people's lives that it's like really hard to you know disentangle that um because maybe it was the environment they were they were in or maybe it was the uh, particular conditions and so it seems like a really challenging and interesting problem to solve it is you really have to get to know the person and understand them a bit more before you apply some giant lens on it you know like you could easily say i just don't want to meet anyone that makes excuses well some excuses are reasonable, right? Some things are just so external that you couldn't have done it. Uh, but you also want an you want the you want to see an awareness of the person that they realize they are making excuses or not, right? That they realize I'm not here to waste your time. Uh, that I am realize and and you want to be honest with that. You want to say, hey, I'm going to assess you. I'm going to check back in with you in two weeks, and I want to see that the things you said that are going to happen in that time really happened, right? Um, so it's very relative. You know, it's very relative to the person and what they are saying that they want to be judged on and and then holding them accountable to that to a certain regard, you know, um, but easier said than done for sure. It is very tough. I, I will say, though, that when you're it's your own money that you are investing, uh, you start to take it pretty seriously <laughs> right up front. Right. You, you don't kind of play around and say. Uh, you know, I'll just figure this out in a few years after I've made a bunch of investments. Like, you you know, every check uh, is kind of like your baby to a certain regard. And therefore, every company becomes a bit of your baby. Uh, So that part helps. Having skin in the game as an investor where you are inexplicably locked into this company because it's an illiquid investment, you're locked in for five to 10 years. I don't think either side should take that lightly. And the CEO should really also um, learn how to get to know investors and say, are they helpful to me? Are they going to be more than a check? You know, is it a one time that they write a check and we never talk again? Or is it someone I can come to for specific help? Uh, and I think entrepreneurs and, and people who want to start companies should get to know and how to interview an investor to see if they're a right fit as well too. Cause it's very easy to just chase money. But I think at the angel investor stage, you should be looking at can they do can they be a way bigger value add than just that check? I would, I would imagine that many people that are in that position, uh, it's it's hard to step back and say I'm going to invest or I'm I'm going to um, uh, do my due diligence on on my investors because many people are just trying to get any money, <laughs> you know, trying to 
so so it's probably there's there's an element of like being able to present and and convince and and have something that is really good so that you can attract multiple people uh so i don't know it seems like again you know an interesting and probably pretty complicated uh um skill set and process yeah i will say to, to scientists um benefit that if you don't need to raise money all the better and meaning if you can find non-dilutive funding because you are good at writing grants and finding grants as spears uh that gets you so much further than having to give away part of your company and so i think scientists actually have a leg up on that especially if you're good at writing grants and good at yeah. finding grants uh good at finding this capital and so that's something that i've actually learned more recently that someone who has that experience it's a whole nother value add to a company it could keep the company alive so much longer um and to a point where you prove technology that maybe would have died out because you ran out of funding from angel investors or venture capitalists so that's something interesting for for scientists i think if they ever want to run a company uh really hone your grant writing experience and lead with that to say you know hey this is something i bring as a value add to companies that maybe a bunch of tech entrepreneurs wouldn't know how to do i like that uh and if and if uh, any listeners are interested in kind of learning more about this we, we we talked a little bit about like sbirs and and how to get those um in an earlier episode of the podcast with sid krishnan he's a founder of uh he's one of the co-founders of rayos um uh, this pretty cool med device technology um so you know take a look at that episode because i think that uh it's a you know it's it's a crucial and and uh uh, really good way to to think about it, so that you don't have to give everything away <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah, and, and as an investor, I love that too, right? I love the fact that you know, hey, you can go and grow a team on half the amount of money that your competitor is, because you can go and raise you know so much more money elsewhere. So it's a it's a, it's a you know another um, force multiplier if you have that skill set. Uh, Neil, I've learned a lot from this conversation. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it myself a couple times. <laughs> so I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and and sharing your your thoughts and and your experiences. Um, you know, kind of thinking back through the discussion, and uh, you know, thinking about people that may be interested in, in in transitioning or in the startup community in general. Is there anything that we didn't touch touch on that uh, you think would be particularly interesting to to listeners or helpful? Ooh, that's a good point. Uh, I think if making the transition is all about, you know, not waiting to de-risk it, you know, it's very easy to wait for that perfect moment that you think will happen, right? Everything, your stars will line up and you'll say, now is the time where I make the leap. It's never a good time to make the leap. Uh, you know, it is, you'll notice that actually the, what happens is a whole bunch of change happens all at once when you weren't expecting it. Somehow I've found that a lot of people like start a company the same time frame that they have a baby and move. And it's like, why do that all those things happen at once? Well, you somehow are open to change at that exact moment, or you just had, you forced yourself to have to be open to change because change was coming no matter what. So I would say, don't wait for the perfect moment for, to, uh, to make the leap, but go chip away at things you can do to get yourself ready for when that leap happens. That could mean like go reach out and have that conversation to someone who is in the ideal job that you think you want to be in. You know, don't wait for the situation to show itself. Reach out coldly on LinkedIn or something and uh, and go start getting educated now. Be curious now and start taking little baby steps towards when that leap happens because it's the, pre the perfect situation is not going to present itself. And, and let me just give one more shout out because um... – when I was thinking about my transition out of science and into the business world, um, you know, I'd had some startup experience in working through undergrad, um, but didn't have a ton of experience. Um, and as a postdoc at UCSD, I found this opportunity to uh, volunteer for tech, uh, for doing some uh, analysis for Tech Coast Angels, which uh, you've been involved with. And uh, um, it's a great organization, but like, but it was that same kind of thing where I just kind of 
someone told me like this is interesting maybe you should try it and i tried it and i was like whoa like i i really like thinking about these types of things and and uh and it facilitated it helped facilitate a transition into consulting um and I also really like the point where you're talking about like all these changes happening at once. Uh, I've, you know, I've experienced that myself. Like it's almost every time a big change is happening, there's so many, there's so many other things happening. Like recently I broke my neck and, <laughs> and I'm actually transitioning, um, you know, careers right now uh, after getting out of a neck brace seven weeks ago. So um, it's such an interesting mm. uh, uh, observation. I've never really thought about it that way. Yeah, one, it's really good to see you out of a cast. So Thanks. I'm glad you're doing better. Uh, but yeah, change is weird. And and us scientists and engineers are very resistant to change. We already know that. We're we're more resistant than others. So when change starts happening, we should we need to lean into it and say, okay, we obviously have accepted some change. Let's go. You know, and, and then rip off the band-aid at that point and uh, take the leap because uh, you know, we know that we're smart, we're gonna land on our feet, but enjoy the journey on the ride down, that's for sure. I love it. Thanks so much, Neil. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. This is the Once a Scientist podcast, where I talk with scientists about their personal journeys and careers. Because, you know, once a scientist, always a scientist. I'm Nick Edwards, and thanks for listening.